Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the Joyful Courage 2022 Summer Throwback Series. We're all busy enjoying the long days of summer. I hope you are. I am. I'm working on it. And I wanted to be sure that you continued to have useful listening material to enjoy. So I am sharing some of my favorite shows from the past with you weekly through July and August. As you know, unless you're new, and if you're new, hey, glad you're here. Joyful Courage is a conscious parenting podcast where we tease apart the challenges and nuances of parenting through adolescence and try not to lose our mind along the way. I am your host, Casey O'Rourke, positive discipline trainer and adolescent lead at Sproutable, which is a company that represents not only the growth of children, but also the journey and evolution that we get to go on as parents. I am walking the path right next to you as I navigate teen parenting with my own two kids here in the beautiful Bellingham, Washington area. This week on the show, you're in for it. You are in for it. Bonnie Ruff is on and we are talking about our tweens and teens and their sexual development. I know, hang on to your hat. Cue the emoji with big eyes, right? We gotta talk about it though. We have to talk about it. Believe me, you think you know how you're gonna handle things and then your kids enter into romantic, intimate relationships and wowzers things get real. I love this conversation with Bonnie. It is helpful. Thank you so much for being here. We are over 1 million downloads and 300 plus episodes strong, and you have taken us to the top 1% of podcasts worldwide. I appreciate you. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Enjoy the show. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back. My guest today is Bonnie J. Ruff. Bonnie is an author, journalist, and speaker focusing on families, health, education, parenting, and sexuality. Her latest book is Beyond Birds and Bees, bringing home a new message to our kids about sex, love, and equality. She's written recently for the New York Times on teaching young children about boundaries and consent, The Atlantic on the link between sex ed and gender equality, and The Cut on raising kids without sexual shame as well as the Washington Post on why it's important to teach kids about sex in mixed gendered groups. I am so excited to welcome her to the podcast. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. I'm so glad to have you. Please share a little bit more with the listeners about how you found yourself doing what you do. Yeah, it's been a discovery process. You know, I think I've always known that I'm a writer mm-hmm. um, because I would have been someone who just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do in life. I always get fascinated by a new subject and just want to dig in and explore and learn as much as I can uh, until until I'm satisfied. So being a writer and a journalist lets me dig deep and then go on to the next thing that that fascinates me. So I've found over the course of, of my writing career that even though my books are very different one to the next so far, they all seem to have these common threads that I'm now with Beyond Birds and Bees finally starting to see. And those are very much family, parenting, health, and um, sexuality, especially, you know, I've been really inspired by girls and women's experiences, and it's been really fun with Beyond Birds and Bees to open up that exploration into gender experiences in general. So um, so Beyond Birds and Bees is a really fun 
kind of my first two books are memoirs. So they're more literary books mm-hmm. and Beyond Birds and Bees is this really fun throwback to my journalism days, my reporter days. And it's just been awesome to have the chance to write in a more topical way about these subjects that are so, um, so exciting and so needed in our education at the moment. Yeah. And you have daughters, Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, of course. So that's, it's not a coincidence. Thank you for the important <laughs> reminder that I am also <laughs> a mom. Um, I live in Seattle with my husband and the father of our two daughters uh, who are now 11 and seven. So I have a middle schooler and an elementary schooler. And certainly um, being a parent has, has been a major piece of the inspiration for every mm-hmm. big work that I do in my writing. Yeah, I find it's a really fascinating adventure to be both someone who is influencing writing, speaking about an experience while also living it, Mm -hmm. right? Living it with our inside of our own families. So I'm guessing that you're like me and your, your professional work is also really personal. Yeah, it goes back and forth from, I think, responding to things that are happening in my life and wanting to know, okay, how did I do? Um, Or, you know, what could I do Mm -hmm. if that comes up again? And then also, I'm a real kind of over planner, preparer type for what I anticipate will be life's challenges. Mm -hmm. So historically, you know, my first (laughs) book is about- Teen years are a shit show. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I just try. I think I use my work as an opportunity to get myself ready for challenges I anticipate that I'll face as a parent or, you know, I mean, my first book was about a genetic disorder that runs in my family and what it was like for my husband and I to be in the generation of the test and, and, you know, DNA test, prenatal testing, all that. And making a decision about whether and how to have biological children. And, you know, so much of that decision-making in that book happened like, you know, years and months before we ever actually had a pregnancy. So I'm a planner and I love to explore, you know, what I think might be coming. I just kind of figure out what are my big question marks? What am I, what makes me nervous? What am I Mm -hmm. afraid of? And then I guess it's kind of like a, an exposure sort of therapy. I go after it and see if I can get used to things before, you know, in time for them to come. (laughs) Right. And so your book, Beyond Birds and Bees, is heavily influenced by what you learned and observed during your experience of living in Amsterdam. I feel like reading your book, I was like, oh my God, everyone (sighs) should have to live in Amsterdam. Um, (laughs) Talk a little bit about how the Dutch culture played a part in informing your content. Well, you know, I think the first thing I'll say is that I did not pick up on it at first. I went to live in Amsterdam with with Dan and our oldest daughter when she was not even quite two. And we lived there for a year and a half when we were just kind of figuring out the whole parenting gig. And so um, we were. I was noticing a lot of things that stood out to me about differences between what Dutch and American parents did, including how Dutch and American moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and nannies and teachers in the preschools and the upper schools would, um, or the older schools would approach bodies and mm-hmm. sexuality and, you know, really normalizing that kind of thing. But it, it wasn't, it didn't really sink in for me, you know, why that mattered more than the fun fact that Dutch parents also let their kids eat toast with sprinkles on it for breakfast. Um, that all kind of sunk in later, you know, when, when we lived in Amsterdam, aside from kind of the other fun cultural things that were different, there was something that really jumped out at me as different um, 
within myself. I felt better and more comfortable and happier in my body as a woman than I had ever felt in my adult life. Um, Just really comfortable and at home in my skin in a way that I would have thought I never could have felt again. Um, it's a, I think it's something we all experience for a time in, in childhood, you know, just this sort of inherent worth and belonging in the world. And it was the most freeing, inspiring, energizing atmosphere to live in. But again, like, I didn't know why that was happening. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. So moving back here to the U.S. after our stay there, um, we had our second daughter and, and, you know, really looked around and saw how the experiences that we offer boys and girls in the U.S. are just, you know, so much more gendered and different. So as we had our new baby, I kind of had a freak out. Mm -hmm. I noticed how much more of a sexist culture that we lived in and realized that I had had the experience of living in a more gender equal society. And I felt it to my core. Mm -hmm. It changed the way I lived and the way I felt about myself. And I wanted that for my kids. And I wanted that for every kid and every person. And so that was when I decided to go back and take a closer look and see if I could discover if there really was a connection between those little things I noticed about, you know, the ways parents and teachers would normalize nudity and um, help the genders uh, stay comfortable with each other throughout childhood Mm -hmm. and accept childhood sexual exploration and children's sexuality as like part of normal, healthy development Mm -hmm. in case that was what was building toward that that incredible, you know, powerful social effect of of gender equality. I learned that the Dutch have fantastic sexual health statistics, but also some of the highest gender equality in the world. The latest ranking, they're third from the best, while we in the U.S. are still trying to crack the top 40. Um, And for me, I got the opportunity to see how that feels to live in that and how families and schools build that from birth on up. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that like that sex education, and I think that it's interesting and I'm guessing, and and this is probably the American in me, whenever we say sex ed, it's like the deed, right? It's like education around (laughs) getting it on, which is so much more expansive than that. And what I'm hearing you say, it's like, it's the bodies, it's how genders are encouraged to interact with each other. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing you really talk about how all of this is just kind of woven into the fabric of raising kids. Right. And I think a lot of it as you know, parents, no matter where we are, we are working a lot of the same important angles that we need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, you know, we are teach, we're doing our best to teach our kids those body parts and making sure that they have accurate terminology for those. Nicknames are fine, right? But a child does need to know the correct terminology for everything from their nose and their elbow to their penis or their vulva. And Mm so we're doing that the best we can. And yet, and then on the other side, we're also, I think just really naturally um, making sure that we give them a social emotional context to complement that. So we're teaching them, you know, did you ask first before you, you know, tackled your friend when they came Mm -hmm. over for a play date to, um, you know, giving them just early beginnings about what is consent, what is a healthy friendship. Um, does your friend have the, you know, like the same things you like? Do they have different boundaries from yours? You know, reminding kids they're obligated to respect other people's boundaries. Those are really kind of normal, uh, social, emotional things that lots of caring parents are teaching their kids without realizing that what they're doing is half 
of the the job of nurturing healthy sexuality in their kids. And then that other half is just really being open about those, about bodies and reproduction, um, sexual diversity, and practicing talking about it enough so that it, it feels normal. You know, I mm -hmm. think, um, yeah, just, it was really a big eye opener for me living in the Netherlands to see, you know, the families letting their kids splash around naked in the park and not just really little kids, um, mm -hmm. in the waiting pool or, you know, even going, you know, toilet training side by side, you know, across genders in the preschool where there was mm -hmm. one little bathroom and one little row of potties and no dividers so that kids would get used to the idea like bodies are normal, mm -hmm. genders are more alike than different mm -hmm. um, bodies have their differences and that doesn't that that it kind of that's all <laughs> um, but we can be used to those we don't have to be you know morbidly fascinated by them because if they're normalized then they're not embarrassing we don't kind of get those little seeds of shame planted early by you know implying that there's something humiliating here or something we need to be really secretive about so it was just incredible to learn about that difference between normalizing kind of everyday non-sexual human body nudity and separating that in, in their minds from erotic nudity. Whereas I, I had thought, I kind of think that distinction's missing in mm -hmm. my culture in the U.S. and in my family. So that was something we found ways to work on. Yeah. And I'm guessing too, like because of erotic sexuality, that's like the birthplace of the fear of all of it, right? right. Like somehow this is going to be an open door to misconduct and abuse and assault. And we're so, I mean, God, let's look at the, what's happening in the news reels mm -hmm. right now around just fear base, like people being motivated into action because of fear versus like, right. Hey, let's, let's, let's pull up and out of this and really look at it. And that's really what I appreciate about your book is it's just really non, it's not hysterical. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. not from this hysterical, oh my God, we have to do better because oh my God, blah. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. Are you old enough to remember TV dinners? They came in those tin trays and each part of the meal had its own little compartment. I remember eating those and watching Happy Days, followed by Three's Company, maybe a little Laverne and Shirley. I am that old. Well, the situation has been totally upgraded by Factor. Factor makes delicious, ready-to-eat meals. And unlike those quick meals of the past, every Meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including meals that are calorie smart, protein plus, and keto if that's your thing. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. In my last order, we got red chicken chili tamale bowls and Italian sausage pizza casserole, as well as other delicious meals that my family loved. Plus there's breakfast and smoothies and all sorts of other add-ons to make life simpler while also keeping it healthy. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
Right now, head to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use code joyful50 to get 50% off. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50 to get 50% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence Whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And I think, you know, we're going to move into talking about the teen years, right? And Mm -hmm. I really appreciate how well your book highlights kind of the overarching oh my God, how do we make sure they don't have sex mentality that so many of us have? And if I'm fully honest, including me, sure, you know, we are, we Americans Mm -hmm. (laughs) are hung up on this. So tease that mentality apart a little bit because you have some great stories in the book that were touchstones for you in recognizing, oh yeah, there are different mindsets around teens and sex share a little bit about your experience and what you've learned. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, just to back up, I mean, I was right there with that. You know, when I was, when my first child was almost three years old or about three, uh, I got this, you know, kind of horrible feeling that I was way behind in teaching her about her body and, you know, giving her proper terminology and, and all those things that I believed that she should have, but I hadn't quite, you know, mustered it up at bath time or, or anything to just actually start getting those words out and practicing uh, that normalization. And what, it was actually keeping me up at night because I was so afraid that if she didn't have those words, and this is true, it would be harder for her to tell me if something not okay was happening to her out in the world. I mean, she went to preschool every day I and mean, she ha- started to have her own little life at three. And so, um, I was scared to death. And that is what motivated me to start talking to my daughter about her body. And I didn't realize, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't realize that until years later that when I'm looking back, it's like, darn, I wish I had, you know, done a little more like the Dutch and started a little sooner, like a little more like, you know, yippee at diaper changes and mm-hmm. cheerful tone of voice and when, you know, teaching body parts, you know, all at the same time. And, um, But yeah, I mean, it really just carries through. I learned at one point, not only do the Dutch have, you know, Dutch Dutch and American um, teenagers have sex for the first time right around the same age, excuse me, between like between 17 and 18. And then, but unfortunately, American teenagers end up 
having babies at more than five times the rate of their Dutch peers, and those Dutch peers also, they catch fewer STIs, they have fewer abortions, they sleep around less, they take fewer risks in general. Mm -hmm. And so that's all great, right? But that's all related to those fears, like what we don't want to have happen. And, right. um, but then I learned that Dutch people will look back on their first sexual experience, and they're more than twice as likely as Americans to say that that first experience was positive, mm -hmm. that it was fully wanted and enjoyed, well-timed, within their control. And that was a huge mind shift for me to realize, okay, wait a minute, I've been thinking in terms of worries and things I don't want to have happen to my kids in their sexual lives. It has never occurred to me until now to think about what do I want for them in their, mm -hmm. social, in their sexual lives? What are my hopes and dreams for my children in their sexual lives? I mean, it sounded even like a crazy question at first. And then I realized it's crazy not to be asking yeah. that question, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was really amazing to start meeting um, families in Holland and in the U.S. who had found ways of being open and accepting of their teenagers' sexuality and their and their teenagers' active sex lives. Mm. And what I learned is that the focus on trying to help kids wait longer is not and should not be the end all. It's it's really more about how can we help prepare them to have a positive experience. So that requires us, you know, as parents and caregivers to dream up like, what is that? We don't have to get super explicit thinking about our kids, you know, sex lives. But at the same time, I think just some basic sense of what kind of a relationship do I hope that's in? What do I, how open do I want those lines of communication to be? Do I want them to know that they can rely on me to pay for their birth control, just like I pay for maybe their, their tampons, mm -hmm. um, period supplies, you know? So how, um, how supportive, involved and nurturing can I, can I be in a relationship, uh, with my child up until the time that they get interested in starting their sexual experiences so that they will come to me and say, mom, dad, so-and-so and I are thinking about this. Can we talk about it? I know that might sound crazy because traditionally here in the U.S., you know, the way to go is secrecy, you know, park yeah. the car, but it's not unheard of. I've, I've seen awesome, inspiring examples of families who achieve that and, um, and keep just have established from the time their, their kids are little, those open lines of communication, even if, you know, their kids are growing up faster than they want them to. Mm -hmm. The Dutch parents who I met and, and the American ones, too, who have inspired me on this really are prioritizing their relationship with their kids over their ideals about what and when their kids will do things. Hi, listeners. Sorry to interrupt this amazing interview. If you are listening to this conversation and you are thinking, oh my gosh, I need more guidance with my teenager and support through these teen years, I am super excited to let you know that the Parenting Teens with Positive Discipline 
Audio Summit Forever Access Package continues to be available for a limited time. So if you listened into the Audio Summit back in January and you are wishing that you could go back and re-listen to some of those conversations, I got you covered. If you are thinking to yourself, what is this? What is this Audio Summit? I didn't know anything about it. I got you covered too. The Parenting Teens with Positive Discipline Audio Summit is a collection of 15 interviews with positive discipline trainers and lead trainers from around the world talking about all the things all the things parenting teens. We talk about how to be firm and maintain relationship, individuation, um, the, the foundation of positive discipline. We talk about curfews. We talk about drugs and alcohol. We talk about eating disorders, anxiety and depression, sex and relationships. We talk about getting our kids to contribute. We have a fabulous conversation about schooling and homework. It is so good. And I know that you will love it. All you gotta do to get your forever package, forever access package is go to www.joyfulcourage.com slash teen summit, all one word, teen summit. That's www.joyfulcourage.com slash teen summit. And you will get the downloads to every single interview, as well as downloads to transcriptions of all of the interviews that I provide in the audio summit. Yay. Go check it out. Now back to the interview. I love that. I mean, that's a huge theme. Every time I talk to somebody on this show or do a solo show, I mean, it's always Mm -hmm. about relationship. And it's so, it's so funny. So a while ago, I went on my personal Facebook page and I just said, hey, I'm doing a poll. I want to see who allows boys into their teen daughter's rooms. Like who allows, you know? And I mean, I've never had more of a response on my personal page. And it was interesting because at first, like what came in really fast and furious were things like, what do you want to be a grandma? Like Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. single response came from this place of, if there's a boy in the room, they're having sex. And that, and avoid, and you, you're an idiot not to avoid that at all costs. And then, you know, I have a lot of parent educators and um, Mm -hmm. friends in the positive discipline world who also Mm -hmm. are my Facebook friends. And so slowly these more, you know, kind of more thoughtful, (laughs) you know, questions and responses came in and and it was lovely, but it was, I mean, but the vast majority were like, are you insane? Like, Mm -hmm. why would you do that? You know, and of course it came from my own conversation with my daughter who was like, what is the big deal? And my mindset did go to, well, the big deal is there's a bed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so really recognizing my own come from too, while also completely hearing what you're saying and wanting, wanting that conversation and wanting my kids to know that I won't fly off the handle, that I can be available and handle what it is that they're bringing. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. we really, and we were talking about this before I hit record, like the double standard lives strong. And I think girls are really held as victims and our boys are seen as, you know, at least on the surface in the media, like boys Mm -hmm. have no control. Boys will be boys. And our girls, you know, they're the ones, they're going to be targets. And 
I don't want my kids to be hurt or to be hurtful. And so it's understandable that the path becomes Mm -hmm. avoid the situation at all costs. Right. And and what's missing in all that is like, are we talking about what these fears and concerns are, you know, amongst ourselves as parents with our kids? Are we helping our kids talk about them with each other? It's kind of a you know, in so many other areas as parents and teachers, we know better. We know that if we don't talk about it, we're sort of like a, um, we're willing to gamble. Yeah. And, and yeah, so that's, you know, and one of the things that what you're sharing about with that incredible informal poll on your <laughs> personal Facebook page, which just sounds great. I have to go read that, yeah. um, is, you know, I'm thinking about how, first of all, Dutch and American parents sort of that big difference that, that heck no, there's a really smart social scientist named Amy Shallot who has looked at that and compared Dutch versus American parents' attitudes toward teenage sexuality. And it's nine out of 10 Dutch parents who say, yeah, I would consider letting my my teenage son or daughter have their boyfriend or girlfriend sleep over here at the house in my child's bedroom. And of course, it's one in 10 for American parents. Mm-hmm. The rest are like, over my dead body. <laughs> um, and so... So there's that. And one thing I think that's really different that is such a cool and easy thing that we can do in American culture that's not even like weird and have to do with sex is simply to really help support our kids as they transition out of kind of those preschool years when they have more um, cross-gender friendships Mm -hmm. to help them hold on to those friendships. Mm -hmm. So boy-girl friendships, mixed-gender friendships, mixed-gender groups to really actively work on telling our kids why those those relationships matter, that that boys and girls gain things from spending time together, and and that in the future, having had cross-gender friendships through middle childhood helps them so that by the time they arrive at adolescence and they're the same friend is coming over who's been coming over since first grade, um, first of all, I think for us as parents, it's like, well, why? I know you and my child knows you and we're in an authentic, you know, well-worn relationship. So it probably wouldn't even occur to you to say like, no, as of today, you're not going in that room anymore. I mean, maybe, but, but I think the thing is, in adolescence, if we have our boys and girls or, you know, children of any gender, um, and of course, this whole conversation is really heteronormative, right? Because totally. it, it assumes that every kid who's coming over is straight and, you know, because then you have to start to think, well, if I, you know, if if my child's friends are gay or lesbian, are they allowed in the bedroom? It's yeah. just a mess, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. we shouldn't even need to ha- think about that if we are, if we know that our kids um, aren't coming together as foreigners, Mm-hmm. in adolescence, that they've been maintaining friendships and, um, yeah, cross genders and sexualities all throughout their middle childhood so that it's just not, we don't have the sense that they don't know each other in adolescence. Mm-hmm. If we can trust as parents that they think of each other as people first mm-hmm. and people with genders next, maybe. Yeah. Well, and I'm also hearing, you know, knowing our kids' friends, yeah. You know, knowing the kids that are showing up. And that was something that came up in the poll too, where's that conversation of mm-hmm. like, well, you, you know, it's not an across the board thing. Like, do I know this kid? What's, you know, what do I know about them? How much time have they spent with our family? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hearing, you know, I'm hearing you saying that as well. And I love that. I love that, you know, promoting cross-gendered friendships, right? And mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. and um, I have one child that that's been his norm is just 
running with the girls. He also has really good guy friends and, you know, and that, so I wonder too, if that's a little that's bit- an advantage. Uh, yeah. Well, it's definitely an advantage, especially since he is a girl magnet and <laughs> he is, you know, almost 13, but he's not like that awkward, I don't know how to talk to girls kind of kid because that's he's the ticket. always exactly. talked to girls. Yeah, you know exactly. You nailed it. And I'm really aware of what's happening in our culture right now. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, so, you know, you can't do this or, you know, let's talk about, you know, what it looks like, what consent looks like. Let's talk about, you know, I'm reading articles and and wanting to make sure that I'm not being just, we don't talk about that. So I'm going to just ignore that eventually he is going to be in situations where there will be alcohol and, you know, what, and just starting the conversation now, he gets really irritated, right? Because he's like, mom, I know that. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, I am so glad that you know that. And (laughs) I feel like a much better parent for bringing it up. So just humor me, right? There you go. Nice. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. What are some other ways that we can keep the lines of communication open with our teenagers? And I hear you like, and and you even spoke into this, oh, I could have done better earlier on. I mean, some people might be listening to the show and thinking, oh my God, like I have done none of the things that this gal is talking about. And now I have a 15, 16 year old who I'm guessing is sexually active or thinking about it. And we don't have this kind of communication. What are some tips that you have for those parents to be, you know, building and nurturing a relationship that allows for this kind of openness. 
Yeah, that's such a great question and such an important one, because I think all of us as parents find ourselves like a little far, too far down the road in in one area or another Mm -hmm. without, you know, maybe having um, been prepared. And gosh, I mean, that's the story of our lives as parents. So it's, it's such a good question. And I think the first thing that I would say is, well, you can afford another few days probably (laughs) to really think first about, you know, what you want your own values to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I learned, I was really surprised to learn. I always thought, well, you know, for, for people to wait longer to have their first sexual experience. And of course, we have to pay attention to what laws are and think about how, mm-hmm. you know, in general, maturity is increasing with age. And that's a good thing if, if kids are going to be experimenting sexually. But um, I always thought, you know, it was kind of well known that that the longer kids wait, the better off they'll be. And it turns out that that is in some ways not necessarily supported in the research and that it's possible that having healthy, reciprocal, you know, respectful sexual intimacy in in the teen years Mm -hmm. can actually be good for teenagers in a lot of the ways that it's really good for adults. Mm -hmm. And so um, that really kind of gave me pause. And I thought, well, okay, so so maybe, yeah, it's it's not (laughs) not even. (laughs) So I think like there's some stuff for us to grapple with as adults. Right. And so then I think just taking a little time and thinking, you know, what? And then the other thing to realize, too, is that the beauty of it is, you know, the more open we are and often kind of we actually if we have those open lines of communication, we actually have more control than if we forbid, mm-hmm. because in many cases, the forbidding just kind of leads to to furtive, secretive, you know, interactions between kids that we can't we can't help with and that our kids might not come to us about if they need help. And right. so we have we have um, the opportunity to really just um figure out what it is that that we want and for you know that how we want to orient ourselves to the idea of teenage sexuality and if if we're in a place where we feel like we can be open and supportive no matter what our kids tell us or at least um you know help guide them with Mm -hmm. that soft control that we can have as long as there's an open line of communication Mm -hmm. um that's probably the starting point and then otherwise you know what you said before about just oh man I wish I had said this sooner or wish I'd brought this up sooner. I mean, that's something that I use to tell my kids, okay, I'm late to the Mm -hmm. party and I'm telling you I'm late to the party and I wish I wasn't, but that's where, you know, sometimes that's where the conversation starts. You know what I found out? I read an article that said, I should have told you such and such when you were four, but you're seven now. So let me tell you about it. You know, I mean... To me, that seems like a way in. And then I also think in a gentler way that seems to be pretty reliable with kids who are willing to communicate with us about their social lives is to just say, you know, what do your friends think about X, Y, or Z? You know, are you, you know, do they talk about pornography? You you know, they probably see it. Does it come up in conversation? You know, what, Mm -hmm. you know, do boys and girls in, in your middle school spend much time working together? Is it pretty divided? You know, you can just find out, I think, from, from them what the prevailing opinions and and values are that they're encountering every day. And that gives us a chance to influence those. I love that, Bonnie. And what comes up for me as I listen to you kind of model those questions is the importance of not having an agenda because Mm. our kids' radar is primed Mm. for whether or not something is a trap (laughs) And so I want to kind of put that out there because, you know, I know that my part of my life's work is to 
you know, manage my own micromanager, right? And so sometimes when I come in, I can tell typically too, like when my kids feel like, okay, this is a question that she's asking because she wants to tell me that whatever I have to say is wrong. And when I can feel that alive in the space, I get to own it too. Like, I'm wondering if you're thinking that I'm looking for a certain answer here. Oh, I love that. You know, and so kind of like what you were saying about, hey, this is something I probably should have said, you know, a long time ago. I think the more open and transparent we can be with our kids, the better, especially in in this context, because... I mean, to try to have conversation and act like, man, this is no big deal. It's going to fall flat, right? We Mm -hmm. get to like full permission, I think, to say like, you know, this kind of makes me uncomfortable, but I feel like it's really important for us to be talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. This is hard for me. Let me tell you a little bit about why. Here's how I grew up, you know, and this is, this is what my parents or teachers did or didn't do for me around this. And I'm still learning too. I mean, we are as a generation, I think. I, I just, I mean, so many of us have, I think said from the time our kids were born, like that we want to be honest and open with them and make sure that they're grounded and comfortable in all their growth areas as they develop into whole people, including their sexuality. But very few of us have really reliably good models for how that looks, especially around sexuality. And so we can tell our kids that too, like, you know? Yeah, clearly. I mean, the amount of stories that are coming to the surface right now, Mm -hmm. clearly we have not had good models of what it looks like to be open in conversations around sex and sexuality. So- yeah, uh, we can do better. Well, yeah, and I think I'm a <laughs> bit of a crazy. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but I, I love telling young people now. This is this is as far as we we've been able to get. It's not a pretty mm-hmm. picture. I have faith that you're going to do more, and yeah. you're gonna you're gonna move us farther. And that's that's you. Like, how can we help? Yeah. So, what are your thoughts around you know? Because we all we all live on the continuum of comfort around talking about sex and sexual development. And so for the parents coming into these conversations, how can we help ourselves in navigating all the feels and the baggage and the fear and like all the stuff so that we can be available to these, to our kids inside of these conversations? Do you have any thoughts around that? Oh, How we get yeah. over ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I think a lot of that is really, really a lot of honoring ourselves and being forgiving with ourselves and seeing that, you know, having a growth mindset mm. about where we're headed, uh, but knowing that we might not be there yet and, and being okay with ourselves in that. So, you know, a couple of the things that I learned observing the Dutch approach and asking experts are that, you know, first of all, you don't have to worry the way I, I was really worried about that you'll tell your kid too much, too mm. young. So and they'll be crazy sex yeah. maniacs. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's like, I know it's so counterintuitive, but it's like just the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, and it's really easy to say that, you know, ideally we start when our kids are babies and we're mm. practicing, you know, body terminology and things like that so that we don't choke on those words. And then mm-hmm. the older our kids get, the 
you know, the more of a foundation we have to build on explanations and descriptions and that kind of thing. So that by the time our kids get older, we've grown together and we're mm-hmm. all more comfortable with sexuality. So there might not be as many hangups as if, you know, we've kind of felt like we needed to keep it kind of on lockdown. And so then, so then there's that, that question, right? Mm-hmm. If, if it's been on lockdown I think it's still the same. I mean, I think it's still about practice, but now you mm-hmm. sort of need an intensive. Right? Yeah. So that might be talking with with friends. I mean, look, I was the mother of two whole entire human female children <laughs> when I realized I still don't know the difference between a vagina and a vulva. Yeah. So I, like, <laughs> I better look it up, right? I need to start getting answers to these questions and getting more comfortable with you know, whatever it is. And so I think, you know, there are great resources. I do have some of those on my website that I think are awesome for parents and young people alike. Yeah. But the more we can talk, I think, with our friends, with our kids' teachers, with our yes. kids themselves, with our partners, and, uh, you know, with our younger children while our older children are around, with our older children while our younger children are around, mm-hmm. you know, it's all practice and it all leads into that you know, kind of more ease and normalization that we, you know, then can kind of enjoy later as open lines of communication that we can rely on as, as some of the, actually something that really can help us keep our kids, you know, healthy and happy and whole and experience love and intimacy and romance in those really wholesome ways that we want them to. Yeah. Well, and I just appreciate just authenticity, right. And talking to each other and, you know, we talk about, we have no village. We have a village. It's mm. just a matter of turning to the person next to you, reaching out to our friends mm-hmm. and being willing to have uncomfortable conversations. So yeah. grateful for people like you and Amy Lang and other mm-hmm. leaders who really are providing a lot of positive, powerful resources. So thank you My so much pleasure. for your work. In the context of parenting our kids through their sexual development, what does joyful courage mean to you, Bonnie? Oh my gosh. I, to me, joyful courage is a, all about that permission mm-hmm. that I, that freeing sense of permission that I got from observing parents who knew that, it, you know, making little mistakes in a day to day conversation with our kids about healthy sexuality it's meaningless, those little mistakes. The big thing that we're doing right is how, you know, having, having an interest in relating with them on that Mm. subject. And so when I realized that it, you know, it's, it's really hard. It's like not, it's not a thing to damage our kids by telling them too much. It's not a thing to damage our kids by telling them something that wasn't accurate one day and coming back, circling Mm -hmm. back to it another day. It's, you know, knowing that I could be gentle with myself and that we could actually have fun with the conversations once they kind of got to just be a thread through our normal life. You know, basically joyful courage for me in this is about going headlong into it, um, you know, with a with optimism and mm. cheerfulness and and hope and trust. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Where can listeners find you and your book and all of your work? Uh, listeners can find Beyond Birds and Bees anywhere they love to buy a book, uh, maybe their neighborhood indie or their favorite online retailer. Mm-hmm. And um, otherwise, I can be uh, found online at my website, www.bonniejruff.com. Um, and there I have some of my favorite resources and just a little bit more um, uh, in-depth on Beyond Birds and Bees. And beyond that, 
I could, people can connect with me on Facebook or, um, yeah, Facebook mainly, but also Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with me and coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This summer, I'm sharing shows that focus on school-age kids as well as adolescents because I know that many of you have younger kids as well as tweens and teens, and because I'm confident that you will hear useful nuggets of wisdom in each episode, no matter the age of your children. Also, I encourage you to sign up for our mailing list at Sproutable. We have emails that are segmented to meet the needs of whatever parenting stage you're in littles, middles, or bigs, head to besproutable.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and sign up for the newsletter that is right for you. We stay in touch with tips, stories, and offers that we know you will find practical. All right. Have a beautiful day. Have a beautiful week. I'll see you next Monday. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talked to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking